Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, for this opportunity to gather freely and worship you. Lord, may you speak into our hearts and our minds and our lives this day and each day what you have for us. May my words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And so we continue our series here on the parables, and we've examined a couple parables. We started with the parable of the talents, and last week we uh, visited the parable of the sower. Next week we'll conclude our parables series uh, with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But this week uh, is the parable of the prodigal son. And I, I enjoy the parables greatly. This one for me has such intense and special meaning. It is so powerful and so humbling every time I read, think, or pray about it. It is the great story of God's love and grace for us. And so I invite you as I look at it, if you'd like to follow along with your insert. And it begins the story in verse 11. This story is a, the third of three stories that Jesus tells in a row to talk about God's love. And so this is kind of his concluding story. And we start in verse 11 and 12 with, these, with this father who has two sons and the younger son goes to him and says, Dad, give me my inheritance, half of what you have, what's coming to me. It's a bold request. You can imagine if you were to experience this. But in this culture, it was perhaps even more bold. Because it, the son is not just asking for half of his father's wealth and possession and money. He is saying to this father, you are dead to me. You are dead to me. I am done with you. I want nothing to do with you. I want what's mine. You're dead to me. You are no longer my father. If we think about what comes in those words, it's a deep and painful moment for this father, I'm sure. It's quite a statement by this younger son. It's interesting that they call this story the lost son, because as I said, the other two stories were about God's love as well. One was the lost sheep and the other the lost coin, both kind of lost by accident. But this son is the one who chooses to be lost. He is lost because of his own choices, because of his own decisions. As Carly said in the, in the children's time, he makes a choice. And so he takes this money he has gotten, and he goes, it says, the scripture, he goes out into the countryside and wastes it all in wild living. We get a hint later on at the scripture of what some of that wild living was. But he, he basically blows through all this money, wastes all this money. He doesn't plan well. And then a famine hits the land. He has no money and things are difficult in the world and in the country. And so the only thing he can do to survive is to work for a farmer feeding the pigs, slopping for the pigs. But because there's a famine in the land, the owner doesn't even give him much to eat, if anything, because the pigs to this farmer are more valuable than this human being in this time of famine. 
And so he lives in misery and humiliation and embarrassment as he wishes and dreams as his life has fallen apart that he could just even enjoy some of the goodness that he feeds these pigs that he is entrusted to care for. And then we come to verse 17. When he came to his senses, the son realizes, wait a minute, maybe, just maybe, if I go back to my father and I ask, if I beg for forgiveness, maybe I'll be lucky enough to be one of his servants, because certainly he treats his servants better than I'm experiencing now. And so he prepares his speech, he prepares his apology to his father, he rehearses his embarrassed and humiliating words that he has to share with his father. And so we hear about his journey in verse 20. And I'll tell you, verse 20 is one of those moments in scripture that just, when I really think about it, when I imagine it, it it gives me chills to the depths of my soul. So he goes to his father and it says in here, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The father. The son is journeying back. He's probably a mile, maybe even more away. And the father sees the son on the horizon. Maybe he really knows it's his son. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's just hoping it's his son. And the father standing there, perhaps probably waiting for who knows, hours or days or weeks or months, sees his son and his reaction is not to wait, but to run to his son. And he runs to his son and the first thing he does is he hugs him and he kisses him. He embraces his son. He celebrates that his son is here again. And then the son gives his rehearsed speech. Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't even hear it. He's too busy rejoicing, too busy loving his son, too excited that this son has been found, the son that he has run to. You see, That's the beautiful thing about God's grace. It's not about being worthy. It's not about being worthy. It's about the Father's love for us. This Father who runs to his Son. But better yet, you see, the Father has no words of lecture, no words of reprimand. He doesn't chastise his son or criticize his son. He doesn't say to his son hurtful or hateful things. He doesn't ask where his money is. He doesn't do any of that. Not a word of that. He doesn't offer some conditions. Son, you can come home, but only if. He simply rejoices and celebrates that this son of his has come home again but he celebrates to a great degree. He throws a party, a big party, not any old kind of party. He takes the finest and most expensive, costly meat. He 
cleans up his son, puts a robe on him, puts an expensive ring on his finger as a symbol of his, his place in the family. And he throws this elaborate, wonderful celebration for this son who just not so long ago said to him, Dad, I hate you. I wish you were dead. You are dead to me. I am no longer your son. And as the party commences, the older son, the good son, hears all the noise. And he goes to find out what's going on, and he finds out from the servants that his younger brother is back, and his father is throwing a party. And he is angry. He's furious. His anger is even a righteous anger. I would probably be angry too. His anger is understandable. It's not fair. It's not just. He's not worthy. That's grace. Grace is not about fairness or just, justice or worth. It's grace. And he lodges his complaint with his father. He says, Dad, I've done everything you've asked. I've worked hard. I've been good and obedient. And you don't even throw so much as a little party for me. And filled with compassion for this other son as well, the father says, you don't understand. You don't understand. Your brother was dead, and he's alive. He's lost, and he was found. You see, when I read stories like this, I like to imagine myself as one of the characters in the story to, to gain a better understanding of the story. And so I imagine myself as the father. You know, the one with the perfect child up here. <laughs> Saw that coming a mile away. But I imagine myself as a father. You don't ever stop being a parent. If you've been a parent, you know this. You don't ever stop being a parent. You don't ever stop loving your children. Sure, you get frustrated. Sure, you get angry. There are oftentimes boundaries, sometimes easy, sometimes deeply painful. I've seen difficult things in families. But you don't ever stop loving your kids. And so I imagine what I would do and what it would be like if I were this father. I know I'd be looking and watching and waiting and hoping and praying and mourning and worrying. I know that I would certainly be delighted to, be my, to see my son or daughter come home again. I don't know. I don't know in my humanness in the moment, if I would have the ease of grace that this father has, if I'm honest. I don't know if there wouldn't be a, a lecture or perhaps a, a comment or two or a difficult conversation. I don't know. I hope I would have the strength to have this level of grace and mercy if I were to ever face this situation. Because relationships are hard, especially in families. And the pain of this father must be very, very deep and very real. And then there's the younger son. I can really relate to him. I am a, a persistent user of grace. Before coming to know Jesus, I lived a lot like the younger son in wild living. I encountered the radical, unconditional 
beautiful grace and mercy of God. I have made poor choices, had to make embarrassing and humbling apologies, sometimes before I even get out of bed in the morning. And so I get the younger son. And I'm thankful for the grace of God. But if I'm honest, I probably spend most of my time as the older son. Good and obedient and diligent and responsible, but perhaps a little controlling and a little judgmental. You know, full of a sense of fairness and righteousness and justice. I get his complaint. I get his frustration. He's worked hard. He's earned and deserves better. It's not fair that the other son gets to do whatever he wants and gets an even better deal. And so I, too, understand this older brother. I get where this older brother is coming from. I understand his frustration. I think that grace is oftentimes easier to give than it can be to receive. I think that grace is something that I can believe in and love and be thankful for, but never really fully understand. And then I come across a story like this, a story that totally shatters all my notions of God's love and grace for me and for everyone else. That the greatest news of the gospel is that the father in this story is God. And that this story is the image of how God feels about us. That God doesn't just love and forgive us, but he has abundant and perhaps illogical grace for us over and over again. So much so that he not only is there for us, but he runs to us. That when he sees us even turn in his direction, he runs to join us and celebrates. Nothing but celebration. And that's the grace of God. And it's overwhelming if we think about it. It's overwhelming if we think about this story. That that's what God's grace looks like for each one of us. In our moments of success and victory, in our moments of failure, in our moments of rejecting God, in our moments of sin, in our moments of loneliness, in our moments of desperation, the God of the universe, like this Father, runs to us. He has nothing but compassion for us, whether we be the younger son or the older son, or somewhere perhaps even in between. You see, in the day in which Jesus grew up, the first word that most children learned was Abba. You know, today it's, you know, it's always a competition, at least it was in our house, to see what happened first. Was it Mama or Dada, Mommy or Daddy? But see, in that culture, it was almost always Abba, some form of it, maybe Ab or Ababa. But the, the word was Abba that, that you learned. And it meant Father, it meant Dad, but it was a more intimate form, like our version of Daddy. And I'll tell you, as a father, you know, it is different when, when your kid calls you dad and when they call you daddy. I think the little ones figured that out, so i got to be careful. <laughs> but it was an intimate term. 
And every time Jesus spoke about the Father that and spoke to the Father, that's the word that Jesus used, that intimate word, that, that daddy word. And you see, I love this image because I imagine my life and I imagine my need for God and I imagine the God of the universe running to me and that I get to be in my daddy's arms, my heavenly father's arms, my Abba's arms in each and every moment, in the good and the bad and everything in between. That the God who created the earth and the heavens and the universe and everything in creation loves me enough that I can have that intimate relationship with him, that he runs to me and that he holds me in his arms like he holds this son. You have a second insert in your bulletin. I invite you to pull it out, and it has a picture on it. And I invite you to look at this picture for a couple moments because this is a painting of this parable. Uh, Rembrandt did it. It's one of the most famous paintings of all of the stories in Scripture. It's Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son. You see the embrace of the father there. I love to look, about, look at and think about this image and imagine my relationship with God much like this. One of my literary and theological heroes was so changed by this story, so changed by the grace of God as an alcoholic, that he journeyed to Russia to see this painting. And the line to wait at this painting is, wait for this painting is always hours long and you're only allowed mere moments, but by the grace of God, he was allowed several hours to just sit and be alone with this painting. And he sat and he stared at this painting and he wept and he wept because he thought about this image, that God would love him so much that he would run to him and he would embrace him. That this is God's love and grace for us. On the back side of, your, of that same thing, you have lyrics to a song. And uh, I'm gonna, we're going to play that song in a moment, and I'm giving you the lyrics so that you know it, so you have it. But I actually invite you not to follow along. Uh, as we play this song, I invite you to simply close your eyes and simply listen. Imagine yourself, imagine this story, uh, hear this story in a different way, and understand God's love and grace for you. And so I invite you to uh, be in this moment and embrace this story in a new way as we hear this song.
it's the story of God's great love and grace for us. That his love and forgiveness is so great that it's free, that it's ours for the taking, and that no matter what is going on in good times and difficult times and loneliness and in desperation, the one who created it all runs to us and embraces us. Where do I, where do we, where do you this day need to honor and welcome the embrace of the God of the universe? Where do you need to receive God's grace today? The God who loves you enough not only to give it to you, but he runs to you. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this word, for this story. But more importantly, we thank you for your love and grace for us. It doesn't always make sense. It doesn't always seem fair or just. But we are so thankful for it. And God, we're thankful for your great love, for your embrace, for the fact that you love us so much that you run to us. Help us to be a people who seek, embrace, and give your grace freely. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.